Hello and welcome to Within Normal Limits, COPIC's podcast featuring discussions of patient safety in the modern healthcare world. I'm your host, Eric Zacharias, a risk manager and patient safety consultant at COPIC. I'm also our director of medical education and on clinical faculty at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. I'm a practicing internal medicine physician, and I want to thank you for listening and helping us further COPIC's mission of improving medicine in the communities we serve. Now, an exciting legal disclaimer. Uh, information provided in this podcast should not be relied upon for personal, medical, legal, or financial decisions, and you should consult an appropriate professional for specific advice that pertains to your situation. Healthcare providers should exercise their professional judgment in connection with the provision of healthcare services. The information contained in this podcast is not intended to be, nor is it, a substitute for medical diagnosis, treatment, advice, or judgment relative to a patient's specific condition. Thank you for joining us. Hello again, this is Eric Zacharias, the uh, host of Within Normal Limits Copics podcast, and I'm excited to have today Alan Limits, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Copic. Uh, Alan, welcome to Within Normal Limits. Thank you, Eric. And most excitingly, I work uh, directly under Alan, so if this interview sounds excessively obsequious, uh, it, it in fact is. Um, so, Alan, the the topic that we're going to talk about today is working with APPs, which you know really is, I guess, the the term now used for uh, PAs and nurse practitioners. And you've been in risk management for some time, and I suspect you've seen risk issues around uh, working with APPs. Uh, what sort of framework would you recommend people think about if there's any division between uh, the regulatory supervisory uh, and and the practice-based risks uh, working with APPs? So, Eric, I think I want to start with the regulatory risks. And while it's nice that we continue to sort of evolve into from mid-levels to AHPs to APPs, I think it's really important that we still understand that there are differences uh, by in terms of how they're licensed, how they how they uh, have different uh, regulatory environments, uh, and they encompass PAs and advanced practice nurses and anesthesia uh, assistants in some states. So there's a there's a gamut of different people, and then within each of those subsets you have a regulatory requirement differences state by state that oftentimes are almost tiered as though the, the PA starts at a certain level with needing more supervision, more required documentation, more physical supervision, and then they, uh, they move along that tier to becoming more and more independent. So I think when I have to answer questions on hotlines or what do I do, the first question I ever ask is, is so what exactly are we talking about? Because people will say, what are, what are my risks with an APP? And I you know, have to answer very obviously, it depends. Tell me how long are they out of school? What's their experience? Is this a new uh, practice style to them? What state are we in? You know, all those sort of things. So you have to get the regulatory aspects right because they are enforced by the boards and in many states there's a supervision requirement but um, it's it's just not as simple as saying uh, I'm working with APPs. No it's not and I've worked with APPs, PAs and NPs 
new to practice and, and highly experienced. And I've given lectures in multiple states that we ensure on working with APPs and have seen the charts and the diagrams. And I will say the, the one thing that I'm 100% convinced of is I simply cannot keep it straight because it is somewhat complicated. Um, but I think you raise an excellent point, which is, although we may think of these as practicing colleagues and somewhat synonymous in how they how they work with us, there are different regulatory environments. So what's uh, what's the provider to do if you're working with an APP? How how do you know what your regulatory environment actually is, and how do you keep on the right side of those rules? So I, th I think you have to have good resources for the regulatory environment. Uh, each of the uh, generally physician assistants are regulated in most states uh, by a state medical board, although um, I believe that there are at least eight states uh, where they have their own separate and independent regulatory board uh, for advanced practice nurses, which includes, uh, we didn't mention that, includes certified nurse midwives, CNAs, um, and nurse practitioners and clinical nurse specialists. So that's four different categories of people. Um, they're, they typically are in uh, boards of nursing, but there are places where they have made a, a separate board for them as well. So you really have to keep track. Um, the, the AMA actually had a physician assistant scope of practice document that came out and was up to date um, as of about 2020. Uh, I actually just recently looked to see if I could find an up-to-date 2023 document that we could that we could be giving out as saying this is the this is the reference. It doesn't exist, um, and so I think the bo the bottom line is you can look at a master document, but you really have to check with your own your your own resource. With figure out what board they're governed by and and uh, do do a little bit of searching on, on that. Um, yes, there are there are helps, uh, and Copic I know produces a lot of uh, state by state uh, <clears throat> practice inserts. We call them that uh, that cover uh, the state by state requirements for a given board. And our lawyers, I have to say, they spend a lot of time. It was relatively easy for them to do it all at once. And it's a lot more difficult for them to maintain those lists because nobody's sending you an email saying, we just changed the, the requirement of for X or Y. Thought we'd you'd like to know you. It's incumbent on you to have to keep up with it. Yeah, it, it is incumbent on you. And, and I want the listeners to understand that neither Alan nor I, I guess I'll let you speak for, for yourself, but we're not, we're not trying to discourage you from working with APPs. We just want you to be aware that there are in fact regulatory environments that you need to be aware of would that be a fair statement yeah and i think the, the good news is they're they're making them um a little clearer over time uh and uh it is really boiled down to there's about six or seven elements and you probably could drop a matrix related to that and that is you know, is there a ratio requirement? How many can I supervise? First off, I guess what the obvious answer is, is the state I'm in a collaborative or a supervisory state? That's a pretty big difference between those. The vast majority remain supervisory. Um, do they limit the prescriptive authority? Um, 
most do not, but there are a few that uh, that limit uh, Schedule Twos. Then the co-signature aspects. Um, you also have to be aware that the while the board may say something, or your licensing and supervision supervision requirement may say something about co-signing. You may have a hospital that's asking you to co-sign all APP orders for billing purposes or for some credentialing uh, purposes. So that sort of comes on top of it. Uh, you know, it just those are the elements. With the good news is very very few uh, call for physical in-person supervision with the rareness of them being new new out of practice there's most states have some sort of physical supervision and i think the last i checked that all of them said that the scope of practice which i think we're going to talk about next is gets to be set by the individual practice setting so they don't usually get into the granularity of what is an appropriate scope of practice they allow they allow um, flexibility based on experience and training of both the person collaborating, supervising, and the, the underlying APP. That's an, that's an excellent point. And the, the final point I'll make on this for people who might be a little confused by what we've just talked about is if you are working with an APP or you are an APP, you know, ask them, say, hey, you know, what's the what are the rules and guidelines and regulations? I want to make sure we stay on the right side of that. Can you make sure I have the up-to-date information? And the, the PAs and MPs that I've worked with over the years, they really know that. And and they're very meticulous, or at least the ones I've been with, at making sure that they uh, that we check all the boxes and do all the right things. So that's a that's a great way uh, also to, to collaborate with, uh, with APPs. And not to be excessively pedantic we're not doing this because we love rules and regulations uh we're talking about this because this can matter when adverse outcomes happen so so alan maybe in your experience what would be uh, an area you could see in the event of an adverse outcome if you're not following the rules and regulations where it could be an issue so it's um practicing outside the scope of your licensure practicing with inadequate supervision, all of those things the plaintiff attorneys will try to paint as um, very, very binary black and white of whether or not this person was practicing rogue for lack of a better answer. So you can have an excellent, uh, excellently trained um, APP who, um, who may be lacking some of the documents or lacking some of the requirements of their given relationship and they, they will use that as evidence mostly to try to scare you because they're trying to they're trying to say that we will take we will try to refer uh, you to for licensure action um, or you know they, they don't have the authority to refer you for licensure action but they can have the patient make a complaint to the licensing board or by the way you can you can call, you can work with me on this lawsuit and and that's that can be a real problem. So th there's a reason why, just as you said, um, you have to know the you have to know the matrix. You have to be able to check the boxes. And a lot of complex practices, so I know emergency medicine practices tend to use a lot of APPs, and they have a re they have relationships where APPs are not working at the same time in general as the physicians who supervise them because they don't work the same shifts. And in those instances, I think the admins have really 
systematically uh, done a great job. And I know hospital systems have really taken this on. So, you know, while we're making it sound complicated for the individual provider, I hope that that's not the case. It's it's doable. Um, you just have to pay attention. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, the full disclosure is uh, yeah, I've worked with many APPs and found it to be absolutely delightful and don't want to discourage people, but do want everybody to have have yeah. open eyes in the regulatory world. So let's switch to the other side, which is, you know, probably the true higher risk for anybody who's who's practicing medicine. And maybe I'll I'll give it to you. I hope it's not too broad a question, but what do you mean when you when you talk about risk based expectations with APPs? So if you have to understand in a given practice specialty or set it practice setting where the major risks lie for two reasons. One, if uh, we simply tell you you can get sued for everything, we're doing a great disservice. You will hate your um, your your practice. You will not have adequate resiliency, and uh, you'll be miserable. And it's also gr- dramatically untrue. Um, there are a few things in each practice setting that are enormously risky, and the majority of the things that you do uh, have very, very limited and low risk. So I think understanding that, and when we teach residents, we try to really get through to them not to be scared, but to have a, a very logical approach to where where the risks lie. And I give you a, sort of a, I was on a call a little while ago with a with an um, uh, upper mo- mountain west uh, a risk manager from a small community hospital who did the best analogy I've ever heard, which was. Uh, 90% of the fish live in about 10% of the water. Um, so you really have to, if you're a plaintiff's attorney or you're somebody worrying about risk, you really need to know. So tell me, what's my, where is my 10% of the water where all my risk is lying? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. And uh, you know, we've started for. Our, our different insured specialties. Uh, uh, you know, this is a this is a plug for some of the work that we've been doing on our major risks in different fields, where we've tried to boil this down to yeah, you spend you say five years, six years after internship training to be a urologist, and you know all this complicated stuff. But there's really four or five clinical situations and scenarios which are most likely to result in misses, and this is fresh on my mind because I actually practiced this uh, presentation yesterday with the urologist, Stephen Siegel, and we talked about, you know, recognition of those immediate post-op complications and, you know, some of the reasons why you want to go see a patient in the immediate post-op almost at any time you get called by a nurse, Uh, and it's like that for, for every field. And just experience in one field, you know, I'm pretty good at internal medicine, uh, but uh, you know, last I checked, I'm, I, you know, the most urology I've ever done is, is placing a Foley. So, you know, you, you do have expertise in, in different fields. So rather than breaking it down to 19, let's break it down into maybe procedural based and, mm-hmm. and cognitive based. What a, what a APPs in the different procedural based fields need to most would be worried about so i I think it's um 
preparation for the patient, they may be the ones who most know whether or not this patient needs anticoagulation management, some bridging therapy, some of the things that that uh, the the person performing the procedure may not be looking carefully at or is, is you know really trusting uh, the APP to prep this patient to be most safe through their through the procedure. Um, we ask that the person performing the procedure do the consent themselves and most of the time if you read the affirmation on the bottom of an informed consent form you will you will see that those affirmations often say that the person performing the procedure is the one who signs off. Um, and then I think it really is what you just said, which is the the APP may not be the one who is in the operating room. Most of the places that I'm aware of, um, the APPs continue to run the clinics while the, while the procedural docs are doing the procedures in the operating and the procedural suites, and and they're doing the post-op care. So no one of the one of the risk areas in your given specialty, you know, if it's orthopedics. It's about neurovascular compromise and compartment syndrome in the immediate post-op period. It, you know, if you're if uh, you're in any any of the fields, you know, post-procedure pulmonary embolisms, big deal. Those, so those kinds of things I think are really important. Uh, and the other the other sort of to go to the team approach and the collaboration and why I think it's important for both the physicians and the APPs to understand where the 90% of the fish are living is um, so that then when you guys, people understand that, okay, this is this is one of those high risks and situations. Let's put our heads together. Let's have a communication about this patient. Let's not assume that the APP can do it. And let's also not assume that the, that the, that the physician understands what's going on. And that's where we really have hoped to try to get uh, promote independent practice by APPs within the scope of their license and experience as best they can, but also to understand when uh, when there has to be collaboration for patient safety. I think those are those are great key points. And again, keeping the the plug going, we do have this major risk series where we're creating on demands, and I think we have about twelve of them already up on our website, and we'll have the the remaining nine or so, well, that would be seven or so, uh, by the uh, by the end of this year. So, if you're interested in what your major risks are in your field, you can check that out, or just email me, and I'm happy to communicate with you, Zacharias at copic.com. But that's the, those are the procedure-based uh, major areas, and let's talk about the cognitive-based uh, fields. And not that proceduralists aren't smart, uh, high-thinking people. Uh, but when I say cognitive, I guess I mean the non-proceduralists. What are some of the the major risks in that area? So it all falls into failure or delay in diagnosis, um, and it tends to be those diagnoses that have a narrow window of opportunity, because if you miss that window of opportunity to intervene, the patient suffers a serious adverse outcome that comes with economic damages, and that's the plaintiff's um, that's the field they like to play in. Um, I don't know. I mean, th that's the general thing. Um, you know, we could say it's acute. Right now, it's all about acute neurologic presentations. Um, it, 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 that, that has been where, um, where, where uh, the most of the litigation is, is centering. Uh, I can tell you that that wasn't always the case. 
uh, acute serious infectious disease. So sepsis and, and unusual serious infectious diseases have had top billing at one time. Maybe we've gotten better at it, or maybe they've just shifted their focus. Uh, the bane of the acute chest pain evaluation with acute coronary syndrome, AMIs, uh, uh, PEs, and aortic dissections. You know, we unfortunately haven't developed the 100% effective uh, screening test that we can be a 100% predictive value, uh, both negatively and positively. And you still miss, we're so we're still missing some of those serious in situations. Um, you know, the last one is 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 sur surgical ab acute abdomens and whether or not they're surgical. Those are those are pretty significant as well. And, and those again, what I'm trying to say there is not that those are with not not that whether or not those are within the scope of a APP to see those patients, but just recognizing that those are the ones that are risk very high risk for both uh, both the APP and the physician who they may be consulting with, or if they're in a supervisory state, or they're in a collaborative state, uh, the plaintiff attorneys are gonna somehow bring bring as many people uh, to, the, to the claim as possible. Yeah, and, and you and I have, have been in practice long enough, you know, starting in the, in the early 90s, where you know, we've seen quite a, a, a shift in, in the involvement and engagement of APPs. And I think it's been just on balance an overwhelming positive for, for healthcare. Um, and, and so it maybe begs the question, okay, we've got these 30 years of data uh, about claims. Is, is there data uh, on the risk of APPs versus physicians? I will say I know the answer to this. Um, so I don't want anybody listening to this think, why am I insurance if I don't know the answer to this? But Alan, it, it, you give an eloquent response to this. Uh, what what do those great data tell us? Well, I can't remember my eloquence, but the, the, the biggest problem that we run into is we didn't record it. Um, almost the entire uh, professional liability industry was not recording the amount of contribution by APPs versus uh, physicians versus uh, the hospital system that they worked in. And so oftentimes the data sources are corrupted because the dollars and losses are attributed um, sometimes as a result of the claim. Who, who, did, who was the claim paid under? Not under who was, was, whose was the contribution. I can say the data is improving. It's not that we don't know about this. The major data sources have been have been collecting this in the last ten years. It's and the degree of contribution is sometimes theoretical. Had you done X or Y, would would this have been different? Uh, and it's obviously there's a there's a pretty significant amount of subjectivity to it. Bottom line, Eric, is yeah, we we don't actually know. And I don't know if that was my eloquent answer or that was a much, if I didn't hit that one, maybe you can tell me what I once said. Yeah, no, it was an eloquent answer because you're comfortable enough to say, gosh, I've known this for a long time and it's just not wholly clear. I will say on the on the plus side, as far as I'm concerned, is if there were a glaring risk differential, a massive risk differential, it almost certainly would have been obvious by now. So if there are going to be differences, they're going to be subtle, and probably those subtleties 
come from uh, areas where there's there's not great collaboration, not great um, understanding of scope of practice or other areas which are really outside of of competence, but they're more just kind of situational awareness factors. And that's as a company that spends a lot of time and resources on on patient safety, reducing risk. That's what we're trying to get out in front of and make sure that uh, that APPs. Um, keep the risk low, but there's still a, there's still a misperception among some physicians that uh, somehow the care is inferior, and I just simply don't think there's any data to support that. The care and scope is different. Uh, there aren't uh, APPs, you know, doing complex aneurysmal surgeries in the neurosurgical suite, um, but there are APPs seeing post-op neurosurgical patients all the time. So there's just a there's a different scope, but I don't think there's any any evidence that there's uh, as of now, uh, any substantial quality. And it argues strongly for people understanding where the right places are, understanding their risk areas and collaborating more and communicating better and setting expectations for patients better when they're in those high-risk areas. Um, so two, two little things I would throw out there that just sort of my I guess they're my pet peeves, and that is for those of for your for your listeners is please don't impugn the reputation of the APP uh, in front of the patient. You can send that to peer review. You can send that to you can call the person and have a direct conversation. It doesn't help anybody if you might want to feel you know a stronger ego and saying, well, I can guess they uh, you know PAs miss that all the time or NPs miss miss that all the time. That's it doesn't serve any patient well, and that does drive a lot of lawsuits that that while we may be able to defend them, costs an enormous amount of money. So um, I guess that's my that's my soapbox for this is is and then secondly, um, you know that the that idea that be open and accessible. Um, if if either, I think the APPs may very well know their know where these risk areas and where the limitations are, and uh, you know to know that you know what you know and that you don't know what you don't know is probably the you know the foundation of of safe practice. Yeah, it is that you know being being available for those collaborative calls is is so important, and that's just as equal with with any field, whether you're you're with a, a medical specialist or somebody in your same area who has more experience or different scope of practice. So Alan, I think those are some some great take homes. And if I can summarize this and I'll I'll give you uh, an opportunity to see if I did this right. Number one is there are regulatory requirements that can sometimes be complicated. You do need to know those and make sure you're compliant with those. Uh, not because we love to see regulations, it's because that's how the world works. You are regulated in the healthcare world, and if you don't follow uh, regulations, you could be potentially uh, putting yourself at risk uh, if there is a lawsuit uh, for the plaintiff attorney to allege negligent supervision, negligent credentialing, et cetera, and that can be a, a challenge in a lawsuit. And then number two is, uh, we have, an, you know, for all intents and purposes, an infinite amount of uh, practice information that people need to know. Uh, that's why we have uh, so many different fields and specialties. And it's really knowing within the scope of your practice where those uh, main risk areas lie. 
anything else uh, that you want to share as we wrap this up? Um, I think the most important thing, sort of from a general overall, any specialty, any risk area is patients don't tend to sue uh, or bring legal claims or complaints to medical boards about pay, about providers, APPs or physicians who they feel spent time listening to them and cared about them. So um, what does that mean? Uh, your computer screen really doesn't care about you. So if you have a choice, and then we get, I do this to, re, I, I tell residents all the time, if you have a choice of spending two minutes uh, reviewing a computer screen and, and crafting the perfect EHR note versus spending two minutes with talking with the, the patient, sitting down with them face to face, take the take the time to be in person. It 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 reaps enormous benefits for your own satisfaction and that that of your patients, and that, you know and that may be why um, APPs who are spend more time and are more personable uh, may in fact uh, have lower risk profiles. We just don't know yet. No, those are excellent points. So, Alan, thanks so much for uh, for joining us for this for this podcast and. Uh, have a great rest of your day. Great. Thanks for having me, Eric. I really appreciate the opportunity. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Scambotti, a colorectal surgeon and medical director of Copic, thanking you for being a listener. We hope you find Within Normal Limits to be interesting and informative as we at Copic continue with new ways to bring you content relevant to our mission. Please email us at wnlpodcast at copic.com with show ideas or topics you would like to see addressed in future episodes of Within Normal Limits, Navigating Medical Risk. Also, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss any of our content. And while you're at it, please give us a rating if you enjoyed our show.